being here is a gift to me. It gives me an opportunity to do something I love, which is to teach the Bible. And uh, this is a little different study than what we hear on Sunday mornings, which has been, you know, expository preaching through a book of the Bible. This Foundations of Faith course that we're going to be going through uh, is to give you some really solid uh, footwork to stand on, to help you understand better our faith. And the first section here is going to be on the Bible. So I've got a 10-week plan that finishes up around December 5th. So we'll be, uh, unless we have something happen where we have to skip a week, but either by December 5th or December 12th, uh, we'll be done and take a break for the holidays. And then in January, it'll probably be the next phase on the Trinity, which is uh, a difficult thing for people to explain and understand. And so I think that'll be good for us as well. But as we go through this with the Bible, I want to encourage you a few things, and that's on that first sheet in your paper as well. It gives you the 10 weeks and the 10 studies we're going to go through together. Uh, But I encourage you to invite someone to come along with you. Um, I want to be really clear here. I have always been willing to uh, collaborate with other churches. You can see this with our event we're planning but I don't want to steal sheep, okay? I, I'm not trying to get people like, oh, get your friends from such such a church to come, and then we can get them to come here. But I have found, like in our, in our previous ministry, our men's group, we had people that came from other churches, and they grew to be stronger men of faith, and they took it back to their other churches. It's a, it's a way to um, exponentially grow our ministry, and so you can do that. Also, Sometime following this, it takes a while for the computers to upload everything, but everything that I teach this evening will be available on both our Faith Life page and our new website. Um, what it'll be is, unlike the YouTube where you have to look at me, you don't have to look at me. It's just my voice. And so you'll, you'll hear my voice, and you can see all the slides. So if you want to go back and review it, or if you want to share it with someone, you can share the link, um, and we can reach people that way, too. Also, I want to let you know that part of my plan for this, and you're kind of a guinea pig group in a sense, is that I'm going to try to put a book together, a Bible study, as we go through. I'm going to do chapter by chapter. Basically, each week we have, it'll be a chapter. Um, And my desire for that, that maybe somebody in here would be able to take that later and teach the class. And I'll give you all the information, all the notes and everything else um, and that's something I'm, I'm hoping to be able to complete as well. Because I believe that the God, God calls us all to be disciplers and disciples. And so we'll go, hopefully we'll, we'll get someone out of here that will say, hey, I, I could take this and have a group at my home, and I could teach this on my own. Um, and I think you can. So with that, we'll get started. So we're going to talk about the Bible. Now this whole first lesson tonight... You'll probably get about two-thirds straight through you, and you'll say, when's he going to start talking about the Bible? But it is important that we get some groundwork laid so that we can get where we're going, okay? So it, will, um, it may not seem for a little while here that, like, when's he going to talk about the Bible? We are going to talk about the Bible. That's really what this, this part of the series is going to be about. Um, but first, we need to understand some concepts about Revelation, 
Okay, so Revelation, um, we're not talking about the book that we call the Revelation, or the Revelation of John. Revelation here is that God has revealed himself to us. The only way we could know about God is if he reveals himself to us. If God had not wanted to reveal himself to us, we wouldn't know about him. Does that make sense? And so, however, the good news is he did decide that he wanted us to be aware of him. And so he has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we can know something about him. And, uh, and that's what he's revealed. So in the context of today, again, we're not talking about Revelation, the book of Revelation. Um, we're talking very generally about God's revealing himself to mankind. And there's two main types of, re- of revelation we're going to talk about, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. And each of those has some categories you'll see broken down too. Also, a lot of the main notes are going to be in your notebook there. And each week we'll add... Um, the next chapter, so to speak, so that you can continue to take notes and take that home with you. Um, and so, so you'll uh, probably help yourself if, you, if something strikes you and you want to write a note, or if you're a highlighter person, you can bring a highlighter. We didn't have highlighters, but we have pens if you need them. Um, so general revelation and special, generation, special revelation. General revelation is that which is available to all people. Okay? the general population. Special revelation is revelation that's only available to some people or at least only received by some people. So you may have heard the line, I know that for, for sure it's in one movie I'm aware of, that if everyone is special, then no one really is, right? And so if everyone is special and no one, if, if everyone was special, if everyone received special revelation in the same way, it would no longer be called special revelation. It would be called general revelation. Does that make sense? So general revelation is what basically every human being has some awareness of and, and can know about God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not accepted or received by everyone. And we may wish that were the case, but it is not the case. And so we are called to proclaim the gospel for that reason uh, because not all have been given this special relation. And we're going to get to special revelation, but first I want to take a look at how God reveals himself through general revelation. Okay, So general revelation, we break that into two main categories. Creation and conscience. Creation and conscience. So the first example of general revelation being creation Uh, we see that in creation, we can look around at the created world. And we can't help but see that there is a God or a creator who made all of this. It has been said that there are really no true atheists in the sense that they don't know about God, but rather atheists either reject God's authority, atheist means anti-God, against God, they rail against him, the Bible tells us why that is, But there are no true atheists, because the Bible teaches us that everyone has at least this general revelation. And the first uh, passage that I want to point to from that is a great one from Psalm 19. Uh, And it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So we see that in creation itself, we can look and see that there's a creator. There's someone who had to have created all of this. And the wrath of God is on all of those people who are not in Christ because they are aware of God, but they reject him or they suppress the truth about him. And we see that written about in Romans chapter 1, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And it goes on. So there's, there's bad news there of sorts. See, general revelation is only enough to make one guilty before God. There's enough that's observable in the world around us for us to know about God. And so general revelation really just gives us enough to be in trouble because it shows that we know about God. And that's why in addition to general revelation, we need special revelation. And so we'll get to that in a while. Um, A quote here from Concise Theology It says, Scripture assumes and experience confirms that human beings are naturally inclined to some form of religion, yet they fail to worship their creator, whose general revelation of himself makes him universally known. Both theoretical atheism and moral monotheism are natural to no one. Atheism is always a reaction against a pre-existing belief in God or God's, And moral monotheism has only ever appeared in the wake of special revelation. So that is revelation, general revelation, that we find in creation. Then we also have general revelation that is conscience. Things that we know that God has uh, told us through our conscience. Now, you'll see in the notes too, conscience is affected by the fall. So hardened sinners have a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So conscience accuses and excuses unbelievers. Romans 2.14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What Paul is writing about here in Romans is he's talking about the fact that even non-believers do some good things. They follow some kind of moral compass at times. And just by doing that, that's a proof, Paul says, that there is something written on our hearts. There's something that every human being knows. That's the general revelation as it is uh, for conscience. But again, that only gives us enough to get us in trouble because now we know about God and yet we sin against him. And then we see that the believer's conscience, once they've put faith in Christ, is renewed. Hebrews 9.14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we see that beautiful solution to the problem. Uh, when we have a seared conscience, if the blood of Christ comes in, we can be purified. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, the believer takes action, or should take action, to make sure they maintain a clear conscience. Acts 24.16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So those are two types of general revelation, and I've covered them very quickly. There's a lot more that could be said, but that really is just to get us to the point of why, why we need more than general revelation. We need special revelation. So general revelation in creation and in conscience. Then we have special revelation. Now, remember this important point. I said it a moment ago, but remember this. General revelation is not enough to get anyone saved. It is only enough to convict. We need special revelation to be able to ultimately put our faith in Jesus for salvation. And I don't want to spend too much time on that either, but there are some people who say other than that, even in the church, sometimes people say, well, general revelation is enough that if someone grew up with no knowledge of the gospel, but they saw in nature or through conscience that there was some problem with their sinful state of being and they trusted that there's something out there, a God or a Savior, that they would be saved based on the faith that they had in what they know. You might have heard people say that. People sometimes say that in the church. Well, God will judge people based on what they know, and if they never heard about Jesus Christ, they won't be judged on that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, it teaches very clearly this is not the case. Otherwise, we may not be feel um, so compelled to share the gospel, because why wouldn't we just let people observe God in nature then? But that's not the case. We're told that people cannot believe unless they've heard. Romans 10. You can go and read about that there if you like. And it is faith in one name that saves. The name of Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. But God has not left us with only general revelation. There's also special revelation. And now we see two categories that are broader. The first one's really broad. The second one's more narrow. The non-written special revelation, and then the Bible. And we're going to get to the Bible towards the end, but first we're going to talk about non-written revelation. 
And those involve tradition, dreams, prophecy, theophanies, and visions. So tradition, uh, we know what tradition is, right? If you've ever watched uh, Tavi or whatever his name is in the Fiddler on the Roof, tradition, right? So some of you may not know this. I used to play trumpet. I played in the pit orchestra for Fiddler on the Roof, and I, if you do that and practice enough, you almost memorize the whole play. But I don't sing it as well. But traditions in Scripture sometimes had positive connotations and sometimes it had negative connotations. So from Lexham uh, Survey of Theology, they say negatively it refers to practices and ideas received from human authorities that conflict with God's revelation. Accepting such tradition like that constitutes rebellion against the Lord. <clears throat> In such traditions, people substitute mere human ideas for God's word. Positively, tradition can refer to the teaching of God himself, passed down through his written word, true prophets, Jesus, and the apostle. There's danger when tradition supersedes scripture, and this is the case in some churches or denominations. Um, You could probably think of one major denomination, or whatever you want to call it, that's based in Rome, that tradition uh, is seen as equal, basically, as scripture. So the tradition can actually uh, supersede in some cases. So tradition can be held on too closely, especially if it's not tradition that comes straight from God's word and is not from his revelation. But tradition is not bad either. Um, Jesus warned, though, about following traditions to determine life and practice over Scripture. Matthew 15, 2-6, and he says... Why do your disciples, uh, he was asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them and he said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So tradition, not in alignment with God's word, not a good thing. And Paul said he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. In Galatians 1.14, as I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And Paul warns the Colossian church about being swayed by tradition. You may remember this from Not too long ago on a Sunday morning, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we're warned about tradition used the wrong way. However, tradition can be really good if it's in alignment with God's revealed word and if it helps us follow and practice our faith well. What a great example Kevin just gave us, a song from, did you say, 1760? And it's still valid today because it's in alignment with God's word. It's still instructive to us, and it's still worshipful unto God. So Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What is he talking about there? Tradition. He's saying... I'm traditionally trying to follow the traditions of Christ. Now you follow me. We'll all follow Christ together. And that's the goal. 
And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. Now, Paul, I don't think, is talking here about the traditions of here's how our liturgy works on Sunday morning. You know, we say an opening prayer, and we do three songs, and then we do another thing. And then He's not talking about that. He's talking about the traditions that were taught, that is, the teachings you were taught, the scripture that you were taught. And so we're supposed to obey that tradition. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul is saying, hey, good job. You're keeping this tradition, the, the right teaching. That's good, good tradition to keep. So um, we're going to have a discussion time later, but the, since this is being recorded for others, we'll, we'll just keep going, okay? So, um, the next one, beyond traditions, is dreams. God has communicated at times through dreams. And we see this again and again in Scripture. So, Genesis 20, verse 3, for example, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. Genesis 37, and I won't read all of this, but you know about Joseph's dreams. Um, in Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 through 11. Matthew 1, 20 to 21, as he considered these things, this is talking about Joseph, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then in Matthew 2, 13, when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child to his, and his mother and flee. So Joseph had some dreams. They were legitimate words from the Lord through dreams. They're recorded in Scripture, so we know that God further authenticated those as well. Daniel 7, 1, the Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then, and then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Joel 2.28 2, prophesies that there will be more dreams. After it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old, man, old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And that's quoted again at, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That exact passage was quoted in Acts 2.17. The last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So we know Scripture has authenticated the fact that sometimes God speaks directly to people through dreams. Now, in a bit, we'll talk about the difference between trusting what someone else's dream is that they tell you they had and trusting something that's in Scripture. Um, but we're talking right now about dreams that were recorded in Scripture. We'll move on to prophecy, and this is verbal prophecy, so prophecy spoken. Um, prophecy, a, a definition here, is a divine gift by which a human being is enabled to speak divinely authoritative words. Some of the recorded 
people in Scripture that spoke prophecy are Noah, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, David, many others. There's quite a long list, but those are a few of the highlights. David said toward the end of his life in 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And uh, this is a little quote again from uh, Lexham's survey of theology. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, there were prophets in the early church. There is some difference of opinion among scholars as to whether these New Testament prophets had the same level of authority as prophets in the Old Testament. Did they, like the Old Testament prophets, utter the very word of God, or was their speech a supernaturally assisted human reflection? In any case, it's clear that the apostles, the group directly appointed by Jesus to lead the church, spoke with plenary divine authority, the same authority given to Moses and the other prophets of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul claimed the right to judge among prophets, and he insisted that his own writings should be the standard by which prophecy is judged. There were false prophets among God's people, individuals who claimed to be speaking God's word, but in fact only spoke their own words. And so because we don't always know the difference, sometimes we might not have that discernment to know whether someone's truly speaking from God or not. And that's why we go to the Bible. The Bible is our authority. And then again, he said in the Lexham Survey of Theology, many words of the prophets were eventually written down, and some of these form part of this written special revelation, but the words of true prophets and apostles are authoritative even before they are written down. So that's um, prophecy. And then we have theophanies. Now, this is a, a big word, but uh, it... it it basically means that it's a vision of God, okay? So God is always and everywhere present, but a theophany is an exceptional, visible display of that presence. The word theophany does not appear in biblical text. It is a label invented to name a particular kind of special revelation, visible encounters with the divine. In each of these appearances, occurring particularly in the Old Testament, God gave a foretaste of the glory divine that believers will enjoy when they see his face. This is the goal toward which the whole story of the Bible points. God is forming a people for himself who will enjoy eternal face-to-face communion. Therefore, theophanies, temporary experiences of that same communion, can teach us what it means to be in the presence of God. So there were a lot of examples of this in scripture but they were veiled okay they weren't uh it wasn't like they were seeing god directly in a sense but they were veiled and part of the reason we know that is exodus 33 20 but you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live so they wouldn't have lived to tell about it anyway if they had seen him face to face but somehow god in a mysterious way revealed himself to people that they could uh, see his presence Numbers 12.8, with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And so it's talking about how Moses beheld the Lord. And Joshua 5.13-15, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to, uh, to the earth and worshipped him and said, Why does my Lord say that, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now we know in other examples where someone saw an angel and, and tried to worship the angel, the angel would say, no, don't worship me. In this case, the commander of the army of the Lord did not say that, and so it leads us to, to think that that was probably a theophany, a vision of Jesus. In Genesis 18, I won't read that, but a male visitor appears to Abraham. God appears as a pillar of cloud and, and a pillar of fire to the Israelites, um, there's the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16.10. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Um, and again in Genesis 22.12, do not lay your hand on the boy. This is when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac. Um, and so there's, there's a theophany there. 2 Samuel 24, 16, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite. So we see these theophanies, these visions, and, and the one I like the most is I, I preached through the book of Zechariah years ago, and I, I never forgot my studies into this. But Zechariah chapter 1 and verses 11 to 13, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which You have been angry these 70 years, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. And so uh, most most of the scholars that have studied that believe that was also a Christology or a a Christ theophany. Um, The the theophanies mostly that we see the recording of Scripture also include a description of instinctive worship and fear. They fall to their knees. They're fearful. Isaiah is like, I'm undone. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so that's something that we see again and again. Christ is the everlasting theophany. Um, in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, whom, through whom he also created the world. So Christ is the everlasting theophany, and we have the recorded words of Christ in Scripture. And so we have some benefit from that as well. And then there's visions. Visions are revelatory experiences that manifest before the visionary God's will, uh, plans, or perspective. So visions are uh, slightly different than dreams, 
but we won't spend too much time on that. So uh, moving on then, so those are some of the uh, non-written examples of special revelation. Um, All of those, uh, as I said, were valid, especially where Scripture records them. But today we must be careful because oftentimes people will come up and say, I have a word for the Lord for you. And it's like nothing you've ever heard before. It doesn't fit your, your pattern of life. It doesn't fit anything that you thought God was telling you. And how do, we, how do we balance that? Or someone will say, I had a dream and I saw you doing this. And so you th- they say, well, I, I think that's what you're supposed to do then. And we have to be careful with that because we need to practice discernment. We need to try to figure out what that means. And so this is why we go to Scripture alone, and we use that as our only guide for life and practice. Um, If someone tells you something like that, check it out against Scripture. Check it out what the Lord is telling you personally, but always put everything in subjection to Scripture. So we get now to the Bible. A quote, another last quote, I think, from Lexham's survey. Um, Christian theology recognized a number of subdomains in the doctrine of bibliology. Uh, Inspiration is a divine action that creates an identity between a human word and a divine word. The Bible's authority comes from its divine source. It governs all areas of human life. Because the Bible is the word of an absolutely truthful God, all of its teaching is truthful. The canon is the divinely authorized collection of books that God has given to govern his people. The doctrine of Scripture's clarity teaches that the Bible is sufficiently clear to leave people no excuse for disobedience to their present duties. The doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency teaches that the Bible contains all the divine words necessary for human decisions. The doctrine of Scripture's necessity teaches that, the, that God's written word in Scripture is an indes- indispensable element to the believer's covenant relation to Christ. Christians throughout the history of the church have seen the translation of Scripture as a necessary part of the work of interpreting it and communicating it. Interpretation, in turn, is the attempt to help readers and hearers of Scripture to understand and apply the biblical text. The rule of faith is an outline of Christian beliefs based in Scripture that summarizes the apostolic proclamation about who God is and what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's basically a summary of what we're going to go through for the next uh, many weeks together as we talk about Scripture. So we're going to break each of those down. So if any of those went past you just now and you're like, wait, hold on, I wanted to know more about that. We are going to get there. But... Hey, we're just kind of setting a groundwork. And so that began with why we need the special revelation. From the Christian and Missionary Alliance statement of faith, we find out it talks about our need to trust in the Bible as well. It says the Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. And I had this ready in case anyone from Calvary Chapel came over that they were invited to come to the class. 
that this is in their statement of faith. We believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. We believe the Bible is the final authority in every area it addresses for every individual Christian as well as for the church collectively. And as we go through all of these together, I'm going to bring out a lot of creeds and a lot of things that the church has taught over time because I think those are very instructive to us. Um, I've included in your notes that you can read as well when you take home uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith because they have a fantastic start. And they start with the Holy Scriptures and they really lay out um, what is going on there. And so I'm going to read just the first section and then I'll let you read the rest. I do encourage you during the week to try to read that. Maybe take a highlighter out and make some notes if you like. Um, But I want to read the first one because I think it does go with what we were just going through. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. That's what I was saying earlier. General relations... Our general revelation is not enough. We need special revelation. And so it says they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will, that his will unto the church and afterwards for the better, and preser- better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And as we go through the next several weeks together, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about that. My desire is that through all of this, You'll grow in confidence of the scripture. You'll grow in desire to read and know the scripture for yourself. That you'll actually take some, some, uh, some time to study for yourself. To see what scripture says. And to compare what you hear from preachers, whether it's me or anyone else, to, to what the Bible says. That's what I want to encourage you to do. And so, thanks for being here. Again, I hope we can invite others uh, and share the link, and maybe others can benefit from this as well uh, as we go forward and uh, build that book together of knowing how to look at God's word the right way, the scriptural way. So now that I've done with my part of talking, I have some discussion questions, and I had planned to maybe have a small group time where if you could gather probably in groups of three or four um, and, uh, and I have uh, some questions that I'll have you just discuss with one another, and I will be available if I, if I can try to help you as well. Um, but why don't you take some time and go into uh, groups of three or four, and I will hand these sheets out to each of you as well so you can have some discussion time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>